0: So like I said earlier, we're in the middle of a sermon series called Relational. Last week, Luke kicked us off and talked about God and who is a trinity. He is one God in three persons. He is the relational God, that he's relational unto himself and how the reason that God is love and he is able to be love is because he is a trinity, that otherwise power would come before love, but in the Christian worldview, love comes before power, and that's a huge part of why we do what we do, is that God is Trinitarian. Today, I'm talking about our relational universe, and I'm going to get into the, the the literal weeds on the fabric of all of reality and talk about how our God made the universe uh, to reflect him as, as an artist. Next week, we're going to talk about our relational vision, as we talk about what it looks like to be the best friend our community has. In the following week, the fourth week, um, I'm going to preach just very briefly and then Vicki and I, vicky is our uh, counseling director, we're actually do a dialogue on why relational problems require relational solutions and how counseling and how sanctification is a, is a change relational process, a relational change process. And so that'll be kind of more of a dialogue than an overt sermon that fourth week. But today um, we're talking about our relational universe and I wanted to kind of just back up and just share just a bit of like why we're doing this and just make a couple of distinctions that, you know, Secular social science or even secular natural sciences um, have a lot to say about the what of things. They can describe reality, um, but they have basically nothing to say about the why of things or the should of things, right? You can make observations about things as a naturalist and, and notice and make observations, but if you really wanna get into the why or the ought, Uh, you really need to lean on scripture and theology. And so I just wanna give a little bit of the what is going on in our cultural moment, and then also just kind of begin to give biblical answers to the why uh, behind what's going on. And at first I just wanted to say that, like I read this study from the University of Chicago, I'm just gonna share some of the results from it. So University of Chicago does this, you know, meta happiness survey pretty regularly. kind of, it's a a all of America surgery, uh, not surgery, um, survey, Heart surgery maybe, but not really. And it's it's a survey across all of America, and I just wanna share, there's a couple record highs and record lows in this thing. And it's just interesting giving, you know, riots related to policing and race, uh, coronavirus policy, uh, and there's just a lot going on that would help make sense of this, but some of it's actually confusing. So the first one is that 80% of people were satisfied with their family's financial position which is an all-time high for this study. I just thought that was shocking, giving stuff. So that's shocking, which also makes the next ones even that much more confusing. But 51% of people felt depressed, anxious, or irritable this week through the whole month of June. That is the highest it's been since September 11th. All of these are highest since September 11th. 50% of people felt isolated 45, lack companionship. 38 percent feel depressed, so not felt depressed this week, but kind of a chronic thing. And only 14% of people said they felt very happy. 86% of people therefore don't feel very happy. That is an all-time low. So we have an all-time high, 80% of people financially satisfied. All-time low, 14% of people very happy. This is just interesting because Americans love saying money doesn't buy happiness, but then if you look at our lives, we basically believe the opposite of that. Uh, Not all of us, but some of us. But I just, I wanted to share this for a couple reasons. One is if these statistics are true and accurate, which across America they are, maybe not here, but if there's... I don't know, 150, 200 people in here. Say it's 200 people, because math is easy. That means there's 104 people who felt depressed, anxious, irritable this week. Half of the people in this room felt isolated. Half minus three of you feel like you lack companionship. True companionship. 38% feel in a real depression. And I just think a lot of people feel bad for feeling bad and they feel crazy for feeling bad. And just kind of, you're not crazy for feeling bad. When things are bad, it's actually sober to feel bad. And it's kind of crazy to not feel bad when things are bad. So when your feelings are connected to reality, that's generally a good thing. But this gap of why this season has been so bad, part of it's the, What do you believe? Who do you listen to? Uh, One friend watched this YouTube video, another friend watched that YouTube video. One friend read these 36 headlines from CNN. One friend read these 27 headlines from Fox News. You know, and people want to know how to act. People want to know, do what's wise without being governed by hyper, but it's just, you don't know. The amount of people who just feel scared to say anything because if they say this, then they're that, and if they say this, then they're that. And if you say nothing, then silence is violence. So you feel bad. It's a scary time. But why are things so bad? Like why when something new comes, is it hard? Because this can just say what, it can't say why. So my son now is about to turn eight months which means I'm four months away from not talking about him in months anymore, which is what I'm most excited about. Hope they do not talk about him in years, like a, a real person. And uh, he, you know, my wife and I were first time parents, which means that we tried making our own baby food, right? That's just kind of how it goes. You're going, I haven't wasted time and money in a while. We'll try making make our own baby food, so. So my son's sitting on his quilt over there in the corner and we're mashing up sweet potatoes because the thirty seven cents a pop wasn't cheap enough, so we're trying to make it even cheaper than that. And so we're doing that and you know, it's good family bonding time. But you know, my son I guess had never heard a Blender before. So you're mashing stuff up, steam it, hit the blender, psh, and he just loses it. You know, screaming, crying and he's kinda getting to the point now where he has like an intention seeking cry and then he has like a I'm actually terrified cry. And this is his I'm actually terrified cry, you know, the snot, the tears, the and you're like, Whoa, hey, so stop the blender. I went and picked him up and I thought I'm not going to have a son who's afraid of blenders. So I went and stood by the blender, and I explained it to him in English. This is a blender. It makes your food smooth. And I don't know what I don't know what seven-month-olds can understand, but I was just explaining to him in you know clear, thinking terms. Hey, here's the blender, and he's looking at it, and he's looking at me, he's looking at it, and then um, I'm holding him and we hit the blender again. And this time, instead of crying, he just reached back and grabbed onto me, which is like the first time he's had even like the capability of you know, doing something like that. But it was like a moment for me as a first time dad where he's going and he's looking at me, the blender's gonna look, blender, look at me. And what that shows me is that the terror response to new stimulus is not necessarily the product of the new stimulus, but it's a product of the feeling of isolation in the midst of the new stimulus, right? New things, I'm by myself, I'm scared. And if 50% of people are feeling isolated and there's new stuff going on in the world, it's, it's really scary. And so what I want to do is try to reframe as much as possible our moment that we have a father in heaven who is not totally willing to just remove all scary things from our lives. In fact, he's mostly unwilling to do that. But he's holding us and the question is will we lean onto him and grab him in the midst of these new scary things or will we because people who really love God, and I know this, when I'm walking in the spirit, I still have these moments where I'm just a functional atheist and it feels like God's far away, I'm isolated. And so what I I want us to do is really kind of get to this idea that the reason that my son turns and grabs onto me is because he is the handiwork of a relational God. And this is the way that we were designed. It's not, we can't just kind of go the secular route and just describe it and leave it, but we have to answer the why. And because God is Father, Son, and Spirit, that he's eternally in secure relationship with himself, he designs people and the fabric of reality to be fundamentally relational, that we experience scary new things relationally, not just as individuals. And so if we want to really lean into our relation with God, we need to recognize that everything that exists in all of the universe is a symbol to his handiwork. And here's what I mean by handiwork is, you know, I have this painting in my office. We showed it on Easter, but it's a, a Caravaggio, and it's pretty, pretty gritty painting. It's Ta- Doubting Thomas sticking his finger in the wounds of Jesus, right? And so, but my, I told my grandma that like, hey, I really like this Caravaggio guy. His, his stuff is just so Intense and it just kind of if I was like an Italian during the medieval periods I'd hoped I'd hang out with this guy because I bet he'd just be kind of Crazy, but anyway, so she, she my grandma's had a person you tell you like something and then she you know goes to like every swap meet For the next four weeks and buys all the stuff that says Caravaggio on it, you know And so we actually she got me this book. That's like this thick it's printed on like this Super fat fancy paper. It's called Caravaggio's eye and it's all about the paints he used, the brush strokes he used, the types of brushes he used, the way, how you can tell a Caravaggio because of the way that the shadow and the way that the light and how you can just, even if, you, when they're fine Caravaggios that they didn't know he made, they can just tell that that's his. Right? I, was, I really like the book, it's pretty interesting. I was gonna put it in my office at church or something like that, but there's all these angelic drawings that are inappropriate for a church context, so it's just at home. So you can't see it in my office, but you can look it up. So. But it's his handiwork, right? You can see the fingerprints, the DNA of the artist in the artistry. And a lot of times when we think about creation, as Christians, we think about that thing that happened a long time ago, the thing that happened at the beginning of the Bible. But I want us to really think about creation as like this is creation, this is creation. My fingers are creation, my shirt's creation. Like the air we breathe is creation. The masks we wear are creation. That That creation is everything that is not God. Psalm 19.1 says like this, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. That everything, whether it's this table, or the air, or the trees, or the birds, or a pile of garbage, it is creation. His handiwork. And just like you can see a painting in it's Caravaggio, you can see a son who clings to his child and think about the fatherhood of God as a relational being. You can see the particles interacting with each other and see a relational, the evidence of a relational being. And so what I'm gonna argue today, here's my big idea, is that our relational God created our relational universe with relational ingredients. So it's relational all the way down, all right, all the way down. So we're gonna get into the weeds, I'm gonna say a couple five dollar words, which uh, will be interesting, but we'll get there, all right? So let me pray and then I'm gonna unpack what I'm going for here. God, thank you for your word, thank you for your creation, pray that you help us see, help me be clear, and help your scriptures speak. In the name of your son I pray, amen. So a couple texts I wanna draw us to first. The first one is Hebrews 11.3, excuse me, by faith we understand that the universe, so there's a unity to the verse, It's a there's a, A uniformity to nature, it's a universe was created by the word of God. So the means that you use, you know, whether it's when you go to uh, an art gallery and it's like canvas, like acrylic on canvas. It tells you what it was made with because what it was made with matters. This type of brush Caravaggio uses. Was it a sculptor, like was it rock and chisel or was it canvas and oil? And so by means of the word of God, so the character of the word of God is on the artistry. So you can see the brushstrokes, see the fingerprints, that the word of God is the means we we get. so that what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. And so here, even in the, in the mind of the author of Hebrews, the word of God is not just God's voice, but is actually the person of Jesus, the Son. And so Hebrews 1, 2 to 3 says it like this. He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom, or by means of whom, he created the whole world. So there is the means of creation, being the person of Jesus, affects the character and quality of the creation. He's the creator, He is the brush, He is the instrument. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And when you see Jesus, you see the Father. He's the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So it's not just that God creates it like it's a flick the dominoes and then it just unfolds in this eternally deterministic way, but it's that Jesus creates it and then he upholds it and he sustains it. This is why science works. This is why we can appeal to the uniformity of nature and test and observe and repeat is that Jesus created the world and he is sustaining the world. That the one who is the same yesterday and today and forever is also the one who is upholding the universe. It is resting on his shoulders, resting on his fingertips, that his character is in creation and he is actively still involved in creation. It's not like the deist who think he flicked the dominoes and then pieced out, but he's actively engaged in upholding what is going on. And so what I'm gonna argue for and even just demonstrate in a second is that, is that we should have a theory of everything, a theory of reality that I'm describing as a relational ontology. So ontology is a $5 philosophy word. Ontos is the Greek word that means being or reality or existence. And so an ontology is a theory of what is real, what exists, and what is true. And so what I'm saying is that the Trinitarian Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, who is is love and is in relationship with himself, that he creates a universe, that what is real and what is true is that all things everywhere at all times and all places are in relationship and are best understood in the context of their interactions and their relations. Particle physicists don't disagree with me on the what, but they may disagree with me on the why. Okay, so we have a relational world that all that exists is best understood in the context of relationships made made in the image of our Trinitarian Father. God is relational and he creates a relational universe. All right, so here's a fancy number, I don't know how to say it, boom. That number is two zeros less than a Google, in case you know what a Google is. I don't really know how to say that, but it's two zeros less than a Google. But this is how many subatomic particles they think, I don't know who they is, but they think exist in the universe, that many, subatomic particles. And what I wanna argue is that all of those particles relate to one another at all times and in all places. So there are in physics what's called the four fundamental interactions. Strong force, weak force, electromagnetic force, and the gravitational force. The gravitational force, depending on which physicist you listen to, whether it's Newton or Einstein, every single particle in the entire universe is constantly pulling by means of the gravitational force on every single other particle in the universe that there are particles on Pluto pulling on your left elbow and there are particles in the sun by gravity being attracted to the words on this page. Every single particle is pulling by gravity on every other single particle. At the most basic subatomic level, everything is relating to everything. Why? Because a a relational God makes relational universe with relational ingredients. These particles are not neutral, they're actually active and pulling. Do you feel like I'm pulling on you right now? (laughs) You're pulling on the people in this room? I don't wanna sound overly pantheistic or Buddhist, but we are one with the universe. (laughs) Right, because even in the mind of the author of Hebrews, the universe is everything that is not God. Right, there is God and then the universe. There is God who is before all things and then everything else he created. And so we are part of the creation, the universe. That we are creation. There's, there's really two major, one major distinction, that there's creator and there's creation and we are creation. And the same carbon that's in your skin is the same carbon that's in the ground outside. That we are relational beings made with relational building blocks. And so the way that actually reality is constructed is by these particles relating together. So particles relate together by means of primarily the strong and the weak nuclear force, which the strong and the weak force actually explain why the sun burns hot, why star burns hot, and why nuclear fusion and nuclear bombs work. So the weak force has to do with nuclear decay, the strong force has to do with the fusing of protons and neutrons and creating atoms. So particles relate together to create atoms. Atoms relate together primarily by means of the electromagnetic force, the protons and the electrons charge, and they relate together to form molecules. Molecules relate relate together to form organelles. Organelles relate together to form cells. Cells relate together to form organisms. Organisms relate together by means of typically male and female, which then produce families. Families relate together and form tribes, and tribes relate together and form societies and societies relate together and start wars. Just kidding, that's not. Sometimes, not all the time though. And and here what I wanted to say is, look at how at every step of the way, it is like particles relating together to form new and bigger and stronger things. Our relational God creates a relational universe with relational ingredients. It's in everything. It's in everything. And by tribes here, what I mean is, even some of like the push-pull we get in our cultural moment, I don't necessarily mean like um, hunter-gatherer, pre-industrial revolution uh, tribes or agriculture revolution tribes. What I mean is like that there's a thought process that brings people together, right? Like there's you know, the CrossFitters tribe who have their own language and they don't like bodybuilders, right? The, there's a thing. And then you know, there's the Black Lives Matter tribe and then the Blue Lives Matter tribe, and then the All Lives Matter tribe. That wasn't as funny as the other one. And then there's the GMO free tribe, and then there's the sheep who shop at Fry's and Safeway, you know, the tribes, right? There We we band together not just as families but as like-minded communities, and I hope that we as a church recognize that a lot of those tribes exist as reactions to other tribes, and they're trying to correct and, and do that, but, you know, the only tribe, like, if we we're going to wave a flag as a church, it is the tribe of Jesus, and that's the only tribe that doesn't exist to be against the other tribes, but to be for them and to help them meet reality, that it's not a problem to be a part of these Different tribes, depending on, I mean, there's some tribes you shouldn't be a part of, but these like different affiliations that kind of help build your just social kind of connections. But what we need to understand as Christians is that waving the flag of Jesus needs to be a whole lot bigger than all the other little flags we wave. And then society exists of these similar, but not necessarily the same, groups of people, um, like minded differently minded tribes, families, et cetera, et cetera, cetera. and that's the way that God designed it. Relational from the bottom up. That if we want to understand society, we have to understand it as a system of relationships, a network of relationships. That any type of talking about the problems with society, that don't ultimately come down to relational problems. Even if you think about the law, a lot of times you think about it in abstract terms, but the laws that are designed to facilitate certain types of relationships. Right. We need to think our relational God makes a relational universe with relational ingredients. Argument granted, all right. Now I want to think about it more in terms of us as humans, as we socially interact, right? Because we kind of built from the ground up and there's other steps I could talk about, but even within our minds and the way that our brains work, there's a principle in neuroscience called that says, you know. Um, neurons that fire together, wire together. Basically what that means is our habits reshape our brain and our thinking such that even as our brain rewires itself through healthy or unhealthy practices, we actually have the capacity to change the relational structure of how we connect and speak with other people. that we are constantly forming new habits and patterns. And this is a a, a line of thought that is pretty thick through even a lot of Paul's writings. Paul talks about put off your old self with its practices, which could be translated habits. Put on the new self with its practices, that we're practicing, we're, we're being formed. And the way that our our brain is interpreting things is largely we experience events, but we experience them as narratives and so we're writing these narratives and our narratives connect us socially and we end up interacting as these social beings. And so what ends up happening is a lot of times we end up thinking that we are individualistic free thinkers and people want to say, think for yourself. But we are ultimately bound to be social thought process people. There's a guy named Alan Jacobs wrote a book called How to Think, I really like it if you're looking for a book to read. Besides the Bible, of course, um, his book is very good, especially for this shame-filled, tribalistic, cultural moment. And I'm gonna reference it twice here, but one of the things he talks about is how, so he's the distinguished, which is a, anytime your title is distinguished, he's the distinguished. Uh, I always think, was there an undistinguished? You know, you're the not, the, you're the, he's the distinguished professor of humanities in the Honors College at uh, Baylor. and so He's a solid evangelical Christian. And he says, when people in my field, speaking about academics say, are, talking, are telling people to think critically and to think for themselves, what they're really saying is think critically about what you hear at church and from your parents and listen to everything we have to say. That we're always thinking with a community and in a community. And hopefully we as Christians are thinking with and in the community of faith not saying we plug our ears to every other insight that's ever out there, but there's just a reality that we are thinking socially as people. And so this is one of the tensions that I see in scripture, and I don't really know how to resolve it, and so I just kind of want to raise it so y'all can feel the tension with me, and then I'm gonna move on, is it's just the reality that Christians are called to be a light in the darkness, and they're called to be on mission to affect, change, and love their neighbors. But at the same time, their neighbors constantly are affecting them. And so I wanna share a couple verses that just kinda illustrate this point from the same letter. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's talking about a believer being married to a non-believer, and he says they shouldn't get divorced um, if the believer has any say in it, um, but because the believer might positively affect the non-believer. So he says, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his believing wife. and The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her believing husband. Not meaning that like the, the spouse, you know, gets saved because they're in relationship with an unbeliever, but because there's a reality that holiness is contagious. That love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, that there's a there's a contagiousness to our moral capacity that we affect people. And so you you're parenting teenagers and you want them to be a light in the darkness and Seems like a good idea. But then you keep reading and in the same letter, just eight chapters later, the parenting favorite verse that every parent loves, don't be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. Now which one is it? (laughs) Is it good company creates good morals or is it bad company corrupts good morals? And there's just a both end there. That we're mutually affected in our moral thinking and moral capacity all the time. Likewise, Paul says in Galatians 6, He says, brothers, if anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him, not put him on blast, not cancel culture, victimize him, but restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted because sin is contagious. So if holiness is contagious and sin is contagious, how are we supposed to think clearly about what's going on? Another one of the points that Alan Jacobs makes, which I really appreciate, and I think connects to this biblical principle, is this reality that people like to think their primary concern is thinking well. I don't know anybody who goes, I'm not concerned with having good opinions. Everybody's like, "I want." Everybody likes to believe their opinions are well-researched, everyone likes to believe that they are thinking clearly and accurately and cog- cogently and soberly. Everyone likes to think that they think pretty well. All right, there's some people who kind of go, I don't care about that, so I'm not going concerned. But there's just a general belief that humans have that they really want to think of themselves as th- good thinkers. Nobody in this room wants to think of themselves as a bad thinker. What Alan Jacobs argues is that because Our universe is created by a relational God. The biggest and deepest need that people actually feel, the strongest pull, the biggest is this feeling of wanting to belong to the right tribe. And He goes on to argue that most of the time that people deploy key words, white privilege, rhino, Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter. Most of the time, people, you know, these kind of major headline things, most people, what they're thinking in that moment, what they're actually wanting, is not necessarily to be a clear thinker, but they're wanting to belong to the people that they love. They're wanting to feel accepted by the people they want to be accepted by. They're signaling, I consider myself a part of this group. And I, don't consider myself a part of that group because they are the repugnant cultural other and they are the problem. And so I've just talked to close to 10 grown adults in the past four weeks who have been past the point of tears, at the point of tears, approaching the point of tears, feeling like I want these people to like me, so I should post this. But if I post this, then those people will know that I want these people to like me. And if I post this, then these people will know that I care about them, and these people will think I won't care about them. And silence is violence. Living on eggshells. Living on eggshells. And I just mean, I've, I've talked to, I keep talking about the All Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter type stuff, that when I, especially people at this church, I'm not saying people, them out there, but people at this church, when I talk to people at this church who have posted those things, and I really get into the weeds with them on what they believe and what they're trying to communicate, they are well over 95% on the same page well over that but they feel different relational pulls and a different desire to I need the approval of these people or I need the approval of these people and so I speak about it like this I mean the way that you frame an issue oftentimes is also you signaling which group you think that you're a part of and which group you think is repugnant and other and evil and not all these issues are the exact same but it's You know, if you're talking about abortion and you talk about it in terms of reproductive rights, or if you're talking about it in terms of being pro-life, you are demonstrating that even in you discussing the issue, you're signaling how you think about it and how you feel about it. And what I want us as Redemption Gateway to just be very careful with and to really pay close attention to is the role of shame in our thinking that we constantly are trying to belong and be on the right side of history and be part of the right tribe and we cannot love ourselves if those people disapprove of me or if if I sound like those people. That any time we're thinking in terms of those people and us, maybe not any time, but a lot of the times, we're demonstrating that we're trying to belong more so than think clearly and well. And I don't think that's necessarily a problem to want to belong. But we just tend to frame these arguments in such kind of wonky ways. So what Alan Jacobs goes on to say is we need to be absolutely attentive to the reality of social shame when it comes to our thinking. The subtlest of social pressures to shame the other into compliance is as old as human history. Social media didn't make it up. We can sit here and moan about social media and how it makes things worse all the time, but guess what, things have basically been bad since Genesis 3. Sometimes social media just speeds it up. It was there, but it's faster now. And so what do we do? that if we are walking in constant fear of being shamed by the group and feeling like we are the other, we won't be able to think well, we won't be able to feel well, and we're constantly gonna be kind of shadow boxing other people's opinions of us, trying to subtly signal to people which group we're in and which group we disapprove of so that people do not think I'm them, but, and so it's dangerous. And so I know a lot of people who, all across the spectrum, all across, just pick a spectrum, <laughs> they're across all the spectrums, who feel like if I speak anything that doesn't like, go along with like, the public narrative, public orthodoxy, boom, shame category, dismissed. So what's the way out? If our relational God made a relational universe with relational ingredients, and we're thinking relationally, I mean, shame is just unhealthy relational thinking. And so what we need to do is recognize that our biggest need to belong is not actually in the midst of people, but it's the midst of God. And so we need to reframe sinfulness from being the arbitrary violation of laws created by an impersonal God to the fracturing of the relationship between a father and his children. That God has spoken, that he is Lord, that his law is certain and sound, but ultimately he is Father who loves his creation. And so thinking of sin in arbitrary terms makes it mean that we're just kinda doing this like, um, you know, a transaction, but what's actually going on when we sin is we are running away from, we're saying rather than being reverent of my Father who is wise and all-knowing and the creator and sustainer of all things, rather than coming up under him and recognizing that he is the sovereign sustainer of all things, instead I'm going to choose to be walking in fear of humanity and that is sin. And so until we arrive at a secure place of belonging in the presence of God the Father, we will always be tossed to and fro by the winds of shame that our culture is throwing at us. And so we need to recognize that our biggest need to belong is in the context of relationship with our Father. And here's the thing, is that we always think about, or like as a church we talk about being in a relationship with God, but the reality is that all people everywhere are in a relationship with God. The question is, is it a good relationship or is it a hostile relationship? Romans 5.10 says this, that when and while we were enemies, enemy is a relationship, by the way. It's just a hostile one. When we were enemies with God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That the hostility between us and the father is absolutely paid for and put to death in the death and resurrection of the son so that we can stand before him secure and confident, not because of our thinking, not because of our feeling, not because of our doctrine, but because of the blood of Jesus, period and when you are secure, and know that you are approved, and know that Jesus bore your shame, not just your guilt on the cross, then you don't need to be tossed to and fro by the shaming of human society. We can be sensitive to it, we can know it, we can recognize it, but ultimately, when we are confident and secure in our relationship with our Father in heaven, we are actually in a position to be clear thinkers and clear feelers, because until then, the anxiety of just desiring to belong to the group which is constantly moving will dominate us and we'll be paralyzed by fear. And so the Redemption Gateway, here's what we need. here's what I want to take away, that our relational God makes a relational universe with relational ingredients. And so when you, you get the dirt on your shoes, when you breathe the air in your lungs, when you see the stars in the sky, when you set your book on the table, when you Read your favorite nighttime story about particle physics. When you interact with other people, the heavens declare the handiwork of God. The universe is charged with the fingerprints of a relational God and we need to see it. We can't buy into this accidental, secular, naturalistic thinking where we just walk around viewing everything as inanimate, but everything is relating from the particles all the way up to the macro society level that God made our world as a picture of his glory and it's relational from top to bottom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for making the world like this. You could have made the world a million different ways, a billion different ways, but you chose to make the world like this. Thank you for the ways in which um, we get to participate in it, that you've made us relational beings. Gotta pray for people in this room, people watching at home, and the shame that just has existed in our society in particular these last couple months. I pray that we notice it, that we would recognize it's there, but that we would ultimately be concerned with being intimate with you in a way that shields us from needing to bow to the pressures of shame in our culture. Father, we love you and we're grateful for you. Um, Help us see with the eyes you've given us and hear with the ears you've given us the relational network the relational reality of our world amen